Hello, I'm Jim White. Welcome to It's Friday, your weekly podcast that shines a light on the best of arts, culture and entertainment to enjoy in lockdown. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And don't forget to sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk. This week, the veteran Woody Allen is back with a new movie set, where else but New York City. Francisco Vega is in town with his new main squeeze on his arm. My girlfriend dumped me for a movie star. And lockdown heroine Lady Gaga has a new album to enjoy. Plus, if you'd like to peer into the daily lives of the other half, well, the other half of 1%, the BBC is heading to the land of the international tax dodger, Monaco. You never get bored in Monaco. There is always this picture that we're all swimming in the caviar all day long. Before that, though, the BAFTA Television Awards detailing the best of British television in 2019 was due to be aired in May. This week, it was announced they will now be screened live on BBC One on the 31st of July, a date which seemed to have caught even the host Richard Iodi on the hop. I'm surprised as you are that they're coming back, he said. Among the shows up for a bit of socially distanced trophy presentation is the groundbreaking Fleabag. What have you found in your abstinence? Well, I'm very horny and your little scarf isn't helping. And the real-life drama series Chernobyl, which has received an astonishing 14 nominations. What will happen to our boys? The pain is unimaginable. In three days to three weeks, you're dead. But have the nominations committee got it right? Have they missed out on any golden television moments? And which shows and performances would our critics put at the top of their list? Joining me to talk through the best of the small screen year are the Mail's television guru, Claudia Connell, and, slumming it from the world of the multiplex, the Mail's film critic, Brian Viner. Uh, Claudia, Chernobyl got 14 nominations, The Crown (laughs) 7, Fleabag half a dozen. Uh, Was it a great year for television or was it just a year where there was great television? No, I think I think it was a, a particularly good year for television. Yeah, especially when you reminded actually when you looked at the uh, the nominations, there was one or two in there that I forgot about. So I think yeah, two thousand and nineteen um, certainly going to be a lot better than this year. Anyway, yeah, indeed. <laughs> what, what what were your absolute highlights of last year? Well, I mean, you, you mentioned Chernobyl, and I, I think we, <clears throat> as you say, they've got all of those nominations, and, and no surprises. It was just one of the most compelling dramas in, I mean, not just that year, but for, for years, the most incredible ensemble cast, and just the way, the telling, the unfolding of the story, the attention to detail, and just the, the horror. I mean, it was five parts, I think, and I mean, everybody that I know pretty much binged on it and watched it all in one night, and it was, I mean, it was so unremittingly grim, and it shouldn't have been as entertaining as it was, but it just was all down to the, the sort of masterful storytelling. I mean, I think we, we have a little clip to remind ourselves. Every atom of uranium is like a bullet, penetrating everything in its path. Metal, concrete, flesh. Now Chernobyl holds over three trillion of these bullets. Some of them will not stop firing for 50,000 years. Tell me how to put it out. You are dealing with something that has never occurred on this planet before. Cheerful little number there, Brian. <laughs> um, 
Well, yeah. what, what, what did you think of Chernobyl? Uh, oh, I, I just thought it was, like Claudia, I thought it was absolutely compelling, incredible TV. If, if they could produce a sort of extra big BAFTA to give to, to Chernobyl or Cher, Chernobyl, he calls it Chernobyl or uh, people. Yeah, what is it? Come on, come on let's, let's, get, let's just pin this down. Know. We don't know, do we? We need a Russian speaker to tell us. No. I, I, I say Chernobyl, I think. But uh, anyway, it was completely brilliant. And uh, yeah, the best thing on TV for me last year. Definitely. Although I love The Crown, Series 3 of The Crown, which I thought was, was great as well. We've been talking about the royal family as a soap opera for years, but <laughs> haven't we? But Peter Morgan, who, who created The Crown, conceived it all, is the first writer, as far as I'm aware, to really kind of latch on to the, the potential for dramatisation. He wrote The Queen, didn't he, that film in 2006. I, I guess there must be other screenwriters smacking their foreheads thinking, God, I wish I thought of that. But um, it was completely brilliant. I, it took me a little while, I don't know about you guys, it took me a little while to get used to Olivia Colman as the Queen because Claire Foy had been so mesmerising in the first two series, I thought. But, but uh, you know, she's great, of course. And, and the other characters, Tobias Menzies as Philip, and uh, they were all fantastic. And, and, of course, Jason Watkins was wonderful as, as Harold Wilson. Let's hear a clip. On days like today, ask yourself... In the time I've been on the throne, what have I actually achieved? This country was still great when I came to the throne. All that's happened on my watch is the place has fallen apart. You cannot flinch. It's only fallen apart if we say it has. That's the thing about the monarchy. We paper over the cracks. Claudia, uh, Brian mentioned Peter Morgan there. A year of great writing. Uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I think, probably will clean up all the comedy awards. Um, uh, and, and rightly so for uh, Fleabag. But what about performances? What, what great performances stood out for you? Well, there's two, actually. First of all, I'm going to mention um, Stephen Graham. I was really pleased he got a nomination for The Virtues. That was a miniseries on ITV. Um, I think he's just one of the most amazing actors around at the moment. I, I'm absolutely convinced he'll, he'll win an Oscar one day. And he was, he was incredible in The Virtues. He, he'd reunited with Shane Meadows, who he first worked with on This Is England. And, and Shane Meadows gets a, a nomination as well. In The Virtues, he plays an, an alcoholic um, who's driven his wife and his child away. And he's, he's back these demons because of the abuse that he suffered in the children's home. I mean, again, it's an incredibly bleak subject matter. But I, I think with Stephen Graham, a, a little goes such a long way with his performance. He's very understated, but he just sort of conveys so much. I mean, we can listen to him here. How do you know who I am? I it's me, it's Joseph. It's my brother. It's my brother. Where's Silla Black when you want it? Surprise, surprise. Uh, uh, what about um, uh, women performances, uh, Claudia, for you? Well, uh, Glenda Jackson, and I, I, I can't see oh, anyone. I've forgotten that, Glenda Jackson. Yes. Yeah, Elizabeth is missing. This was her, I think it was something like thir a 30-year gap uh, between her last performance, so a return to acting, and it was a, a one-off drama about a woman sort of um, with, with dementia, and it was just the most powerful performance. I think we, we, we talked about it on, on, on this show, and we were both saying how it was just something you, you couldn't stop thinking about in the days and weeks afterwards. It was incredible. So I'm, I'm so pleased that she's nominated, and I'm, I'm sure she's going to win. Elizabeth, it's me. Something's not right. She must have gone away. I'm talking to a bloody brick wall. What if she's been the tent? Elizabeth is missing, I know it. 
Are you out looking for him? Like I told you yesterday. Was I here yesterday? What's happened to my sister? Where is she? Where is she? Your sister, Suki, went missing 70 years ago. Suki! I looked everywhere for her. That's why I've got to find Elizabeth. Uh, and Brian, anything that isn't there? I, I, I know you're a big screen man, but you watch your TV. Anything oh, yeah, that yeah. isn't there that, that you think, that ought to have got a nod? I, I was quite surprised not to find um, the Gavin and Stacey Christmas special uh, there. I think, I think uh, well, I'll, it gets a, a bit of it, a little segment of it gets a, is up for a, an award, I think. But the whole thing is not... You know, it was one of the big TV events of the year, I thought. And, you know, 17 million plus people watched it, which is like a throwback, really, to the, you know, the, the old days of the 70s and 80s when, you know, tens of millions of people watched a single program. So I, I was quite, I was surprised by that. It was, uh, for me, uh, Chernobyl has to be, I would say, the, the, you know, the big kind of dramatic event of the year in terms of series. But for a one-off, I thought that was, a, a you know, Christmas Day and everything. So I, I was surprised. But... Um, but there is a category, and, and Claudia will know better than me whether this is a new category, but it's a must-see category voted for by the public. And apparently the moment where Nessa drops down on one knee and proposes to Smithy, uh, Ruth Jones and James Corden, uh, is, is up for a must-see award. Will you marry me? What? Marry me. But it has to, it has to beat the mighty bit from Love Island when Michael moves on from Amber, uh, which, I, which I have to say eluded me. I didn't. Uh, I'm not a Love Island man. But. Anything missing for you, Claudia, that you would have liked to have seen get a nomination? Well, there's a few surprises. I mean, Brian mentions uh, Gavin and Stacey. I, I was surprised there wasn't more for Game of Thrones. And also really bizarre is that EastEnders is, is not nominated in the soap category. We only have three major soaps in, in the Ooh. UK. So for EastEnders to, to miss out the biggest and the most watched seems, seems very odd. <laughs> Back in 2005, the crime writer Peter May, these days internationally renowned for his multi-million selling Lewis trilogy, completed a novel about a murder that takes place during a viral pandemic. The country is in lockdown. Everyone is self-isolating. The detectives are obliged to wear face masks. Sound familiar? Oddly, the response of a plethora of publishers at the time was to turn down his manuscript as ludicrously far-fetched. A pandemic? You're having a laugh. Fifteen years on, May rediscovered his book, sent it to his publisher, and it has been the hit of the lockdown, topping the bestsellers charts. And he joins me now via the joys of Zoom from his home in France. Um, so, Peter, how did this novel come to be revived, this novel that had been in your bottom drawer for 15 years? It's a very good question. Um, it was actually somebody on my Twitter account uh, on the timeline who suggested that I might like to think about writing a novel or a thriller set against the backdrop of the current coronavirus. And I suddenly thought, wait a minute, I've already done that. Um, it, it, because this book that I wrote in, in 2005, set in London during a, a global pandemic, had lain in a bottom drawer all these years. I hadn't been able to get it published at the time for various reasons. And I literally had forgotten all about it until this came up on my Twitter timeline. And I suddenly thought, yeah, wait a minute. And I went into my um, Dropbox and dug out the file from 15 years ago and reread it. and 
frankly, was quite amazed at how much of the detail in the book corresponded to exactly what was happening now. Well, that's the amazing thing, because am I right in saying initially publishers were saying, oh, this is far too far-fetched, this had never happened. But actually, I was reading it. It's incredibly accurate, stuff with social distancing. And it opens, doesn't it, with a scene where they're preparing the O2 centre to become a morgue right over the water from where they were preparing a, a giant hospital for the Nightingale Hospital at the XL. Yeah, it's, um, it, it, there were lots of uh, parallels which were quite spooky, in, in fact, because in the, in the first chapter in the book, the Prime Minister dies of the virus, and the e-book came out just as uh, uh, Boris Johnson was taken into St. Thomas Hospital, the very hospital in the book that the Prime Minister dies in. Um, so it, it was just very spooky at the time. <laughs> you suddenly worried that you'd become Cassandra and poor old Boris was now doomed. <laughs> yes, I thought, I'm going to get the blame for this if he dies. <laughs> the publisher said, yeah, we'll, we'll go for it. It became immediately a huge success. Did that surprise you? Did you think people, when they were in lockdown, wanted to read about lockdown? Well, that was a strange thing, wasn't it? I mean, I wasn't sure how people would respond to it. Um, and yet, I mean, there are those people who said, you know, well, it sounds interesting, but I really can't bring myself to read it now in the middle of all this. But uh, the majority of people were just dying to get their hands on it. And the reaction of an incredible number of people having read it was, uh, and this is the word that crops up again and again, was a sense of comfort, which seems odd, but I, I think it's explained by the fact that the, the backdrop of the, the book, which in 2005 would have been totally alien and, and out with any of our experience, suddenly now is part of our everyday fabric of life and, and is very familiar to us. As we um, look at other uh, media reading books, watching TV or movies, all of which were made or written before this pandemic. It, I mean, I personally uh, look at these things and think, oh no, you, you're standing too close. Don't hug, don't kiss, don't shake his hand. You know, we, we, we become conditioned to this sense of the old normal being quite alien now. And the new normal, which is what we're living through at the moment, is reflected kind of quite accurately in lockdown and people get a sense of comfort from that. The interesting thing is, Peter, this isn't the first time that you've come up with something that turned out to be uh, true later. Um, you wrote a novel in 2002 called Snakehead about the discovery of a bunch of illegal immigrants dead in the back of a lorry. Spookily, that came out. I mean, where, where do you get these ideas of futurology <laughs> and what on earth is this week's lottery number? I have been asked that uh, quite a few times, actually. Uh, you know, in, in, in my early in my career, when I was a um, story editor on a, a Scottish soap opera called Take the High Road, uh, which I believe they just, they've started putting out again on, uh, you know, STVI player, <laughs> um, uh, I, I wrote quite a number of stories which spookily came true. Uh, you know, silly, silly little things like, you know, a character falls off a ladder and breaks his arms, and two weeks later, the actor fell off a ladder and broke his arm, you know, um, you write the character gets pregnant and, you know, a, a month later the actress gets pregnant. 
and it, it became the kind of um, uh, a kind of subject of uh, some uh, fearful levity in the green room. And people used to come to my door and say, you know, exactly that. Can can you uh, write my character winning the lottery? <laughs> 2005 lockdown was turned down by publishers. Any publisher would be completely crazy to turn down a Peter May uh, idea. Now, you know, the Lewis trilogy sold millions of copies. You've been hugely successful. Your life has changed completely since those uh, days of 2005. Is it more fun now? <laughs> Good question. Um, I don't know. I, I never. Um, I never set out to make money. Uh, it, it, I, I only ever set out to write. That was just what I wanted always to do. And I had a, a long career, you know, starting out as a journalist, and then writing in television, uh, and finally writing books. And um, television, up to that point, had been the most lucrative side of my life. Um, writing books was a trial because you know it's very hard to make a living writing books, and certainly for the, about the first ten years, uh, I was really toiling, really struggling to make a living and to to pay the bills. Yeah, the success of the books that, that finally came kind of transformed my life financially. Uh, but then, it, it you know, with success comes pressure, uh, always pressure to write the next book and for the next book to be as successful, if not more successful than the last book. And, and that just piles on and piles on and expectations become greater and greater. So I'm, I'm just ready to retire now and, you know, play music as you see behind me in my studio and, uh, you know, leave all that stuff behind me. Yes, uh, I, I'm privileged to be able to look into your studio and you've got a, a vast array of instrumentation behind you. Uh, I see a guitar and a keyboard. Which are you better at? Primarily, I'm a keyboard player. Um, I can strum away on the guitar, and uh, I play bass guitar as well, and occasionally flute quite badly. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, music has been um, one of those strands of my life that has uh, been with me right from the, the veriest, very earliest days. I think I started piano lessons when I was six years old, and I think I got to about grade six before I, I gave up in disgust. And that was before I discovered the Beatles, and that transformed my um, musical appreciation, shall we say. Um, it's been great talking to you, Peter. Can I just finally return to lockdown, this book about a pandemic? Don't want to give anything away. Is it an optimistic conclusion, or is the future, as Peter Bay sees it, rather gloomy and dark? Well, I would be giving too much away to say exactly how it ends. Um, it, say, put it this way, it's quite a dark story, and uh, it ends, in a sense, ambivalently. And people who've read the book, quite a lot of people who've read the book have come to me and said, will you write a sequel? Please write a sequel and tell us how it all works out, <laughs> as if I know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think you have to read it to find out how it ends. Although, in terms of real life, I'm, I'm pessimistic with the way things are going at the moment because I think we're lifting lockdown far too soon and that there's a, a big danger of a second wave. But um, ultimately, I think there will be a vaccine and that we'll, we'll put this episode behind us. But it's it's not the first epidemic or pandemic, and it won't be the last. So we need to be better prepared next time. 
Uh, and any sequel, if it featured, for instance, a government advisor breaking his own rules, will surely be told by the publishers that's ludicrous. Of course, totally unbelievable. How could that possibly happen? <laughs> Peter, it's been great speaking to you. Thanks so much. Cheers, Jim. it's time for hits and misses where the daily mail's writers turn their expert eye to the week's new releases and applying the government's new covid alert system tell us what is level five and thus should be avoided at all costs and what is level one and therefore should be embraced with open arms. First up, the Daily Mail's film man, Brian Viner. And Brian, you have news of someone who I'm astonished is still making movies. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Woody Allen, 84 years old and um, mired in uh, some slightly unpleasant allegations which have resurfaced in in recent years since the me too movement um but yeah on he goes churning them out uh and this is called a rainy day in new york it's a romantic comedy which i'm sorry to say is not that romantic and not especially funny jim but uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> otherwise <laughs> but in every other respect yeah um it stars um I have to say, I have prefaced all this by saying I'm a big Woody Allen fan and I've loved a lot of his movies over the years. And I don't subscribe to the idea that he hasn't made a good film in, you know, in Donkey's years because actually I think he's made some very good films in the last, his last 10 movies or so include Blue Jasmine and I thought that was great and Vicky Christina Barcelona and Midnight in Paris, they were all terrific. This one just doesn't work really. I mean, it's, it stars Timothy Chalamet, who is, who's a lovely young actor who's, who's kind of got that, the, the, the roles that Hugh Grant used to get, you know, the floppy haired romantic lead, young romantic lead. And he and uh, Elle Fanning are the two romantic leads in this. And I'll, I'll tell you more in a moment, but let's just listen to a clip. I got an interview with Roland Pollard. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. <laughs> and it's on campus? Mm-mm. It's in Manhattan. We're always talking about going into Manhattan for a special weekend. <laughs> this is going to be absolutely fantastic. Later, maybe we could take a carriage ride? Yeah. If it doesn't rain. You're by far the most interesting American director. Since this is your first meaningful assignment, would you like a scoop? Of... I can't make lunch. Why not? He's going through this real artistic crisis. It's a scoop. <laughs> right, yeah. So so there you hear uh, Gatsby, which is the Timothy Chalamet character, a very unsubtle name for a, a spoiled, wealthy young college student. Ashley L. Fanning, his, his girlfriend, she's a journalist for the college paper. They're both fellow students as a sort of Ivy League type college in upstate New York and she lands uh, an interview with a film director, neurotic film director, clearly modelled on Woody himself, uh, played by Liv Schreiber and so they go into Manhattan where she's conducting the interview, she goes off to do the interview, Gatsby is sort of waiting for her. She takes a long time because, of course, Liv Schreiber, the, uh, the film director, falls for her. And then every other man of sort of 30 or 40 years older than her also seems to fall for her. Again, another Woody Allen motif. Um, and that leaves Gatsby to do his own thing. And really, the film is just, just chronicles their sort of slightly farcical adventures on this day, this rainy day in New York. And all would be fine, except for the fact that I don't think Woody Allen's very good at writing dialogue, or not in this film anyway, for what we call millennials, you know, for young kids of 21, 22. They don't talk like people of that age talk. You as a father of 
children about the same age as mine, Jim, will recognise that. And it just, you know, it's, it strains a bit hard. It's not that funny. It's, it's a bit clumsy and clunky. There are some nice moments. Jude Law pops up in it. He plays a, a screenwriter. But it, it's by no means vintage Woody Allen. And, um, you know, quite aside from all the other stuff and the, the sort of moral equivocation that surrounds him these days, you know, we'll ignore that. But it's just on, on its own basis as a sort of uh, artistic piece of work, I think this is a miss. Brian, you mentioned there all the other stuff, that the baggage that goes with Woody Allen. Does that matter? Can you watch that movie without thinking of that? Well, I mean, I, I, for what it's worth, Jim, I think, and I've done a lot of reading on this, and I'm, I try not to be steered too much by the fact that I'm a big fan of his, but I, I, I think that the, the, this allegation of sexual abuse is, is probably confected, and I, I think it's just a, it's an attempt to, to malign him, and it's been very successful in that respect. So, um, so but personally, I can put that aside. It's not like, you know, it's a, it's a harder ask if you if you ask that question with regard to roman polanski say you know then whose misdeeds are proven then um it's a different matter but i i think you can there is however a scene in this film where Elle fanning runs around in pretty skimpy underwear and you you can't help thinking of the 84 year old woody allen behind the camera so uh, so yeah it does sort of it does kind of but into your the, the you know your take on the film i guess there's another much better film this this week the, these are both out on streaming channels um called days of the bagnold summer which i really recommend it's uh, directed by simon bird of in betweeners fame adapted from a graphic novel by his own wife a woman called lisa owens um, and it has a really lovely soundtrack by bell and sebastian the scottish band of whom i'm a, a big fan and it's the story of a a mother and son who are both sort of introverted characters and they're forced to spend the summer with each other when his trip to Florida goes awry. Well, let's listen to a clip. So, Sue, is Daniel enjoying his summer holidays? Not really. He was meant to be visiting his father in Florida. But let's just say Bob isn't the most reliable. Hello. Well, I'm afraid you're stuck with boring old me for six weeks. But we'll have fun. Sorry to hear about his trip. Daniel seems quite philosophical about it all, though. I don't want to be here, do I? I want to be in Florida, where I'm supposed to be, with Dad. I think he's quite disappointed, to be honest. That <laughs> suddenly sounded like Harry Enfield's teenager <laughs> erupting there. Yeah, it's a, and actually, of course, it is a, a little bit like Kevin the teenager, sort of writ large. But but he's but it's a, he's a more interesting character than that. His name is Daniel, uh, and his mother is Sue, and their surname is Bagnold. Hence the title, Days of the Bagnold Summer. She's played very nicely by Monica Dolan, and he's played by Earl Cave who is the son of Nick Cave, the, uh, the singer and songwriter. Uh, they both do a really terrific job. It's, it's about, and, and anyone who, you know, had a slightly fractious relationship with uh, any man who had a fractious teenage relationship with their mother will sort of wince and laugh in recognition of themselves. I know I did. Uh, um, so, um, but it's, it's very good. We also there heard Tamsin Gregg and Rob Bryden, who play sort of subsidiary characters and they're as terrific as they always are but this is really it's a it's the story of, of two people her desperately trying to be friends with him and and to make him behave in a civilized way he's big into heavy metal he's got long greasy hair and he just thinks that she is the most embarrassing worthless 
thing on the planet. And so it's her trying to kind of overcome that and just very gradually over the course of the film, you know, you know, the relationship begins to thaw. It's actually, it's very lovely, sweetly observed, very funny, very poignant in parts. I, I really enjoyed it. I highly recommend it. Uh, so we're going to have to pronounce it a, a big hit, I think. Now I'm joined by the male's music critic, Adrian Thrills. Uh, now, Adrian, you have news of someone who's been very busy during lockdown. Yes, of course. Lady Gaga, who, who of course, curated the, um, the One World Together concert uh, at just at the, you know, the first couple of weeks of lockdown with a kind of gallery of stars. And uh, she rounded it off by singing a very touching version of Charlie Chaplin's Smile, which kind of showed one aspect of Gaga, which is this often underrated kind of musicality. She's a really good uh, instrumentalist. She's a good piano player. She can do these kind of tender songs and i mean she did an album over the last couple of years she's done a jazz album with tony bennett called cheek to cheek which was excellent and really kind of showed her her jazz chops she uh, she made a, a country-ish album with mark ronson called joanne which had kind of country folk and pop then of course she uh, hot-footed it off to hollywood to uh, find herself nominated for an oscar for a star is born but, uh, but her first love, I think, has always been the dance floor. And with her new album, much delayed, because it was held back at the start of the lockdown, Chromatica, is, it's a real return to her Lower East Side, New York, Clubland roots. And she's employed in a, a gallery of top-notch dance music producers, Max Martin, Blood Pop, a couple of the Swedish House Mafia guys. And it's a real, I mean, none of us are going to be going out to nightclubs or gigs in the near future, but uh, if you're having a Friday night kitchen disco, this would be a pretty good starting point, actually. It's a bit like Madonna when she, after kind of experimenting, she went right back to the dance floor with confessions on a dance floor. And I think this is a kind of similar similar move there's a couple of big ticket duets there's one with ariana grande one with elton john there's a collaboration with a, a k-pop girl group called blackpink but it's it's a real it's a proper dance record and uh, i think we're going to listen to a song called stupid love that uh, that really is a floor filler that is back to the old uh, lady gaga there is a there is a hint of the kind of madonna about that isn't there's there? there's a couple of tracks there's a track called babylon on this album that bears an uncanny resemblance to madonna's vogue i think uh, i think the queen of pop might be listening quite carefully to that one <laughs> um i mean yeah i mean madonna is a role model still for a whole swathe of of female singers and gaga being no exception um but this is it's a really nice upbeat kind of holiday record if we if we're going to be if we were going to be going to any mediterranean beach resorts this year this would be one of those uh, kind of euro style pop hits that we'd be hearing everywhere sadly we've we've just got our kitchens to uh, to dance around at the moment but nevertheless for you a hit or a miss uh, adrian i think it'd be churlish to kind of uh, to deny gaga a hit on this one and and who else have you been listening to this week 
from the uh, completely opposite extreme of end of the spectrum there's a, there's a british band called sports team who who formed at uni three or four years ago and they're very much in the uh, kind of raucous indie pop stroke Britpop tradition of bands like Blur and Pulp, with a with a touch maybe of the Strokes as well as a few kind of American influences. Uh, and yet again, I think they would have been spending most of the summer kind of entertaining young people in you know who flocked to mosh pits. But there's uh, there's going to be none of that this year either. But they've they've sort of rushed forward their um, debut album, and it's um, it's it's very much in that kind of that kind of indie punk Britpop tradition with lyrics that are i mean they're kind of, it's the sound of the suburbs it's a real kind of uh, you know picture of kind of uh, middle britain there's songs about roundabouts rhododendrons britain in bloom competitions and they they kind of satirize it but also they kind of gently satirize it but also kind of celebrate it it's almost in the tradition of of john betjamin it's uh, it's just kind of wry observations and uh, it's obviously all kids who come from from the suburbs, um, and it's it's a it's a nice energetic uh, Brit pop record. As an example, uh, we're going to hear a song called "Going Soft," which has those strokes like fuzz tone guitars, and uh, I think it actually mentions Trini and Susanna in the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and if, if Gaga fits in tra- tradition, that sounds as though they really do as well. Yeah, they really do. And it's, it's a tradition that's kind of become almost much maligned in recent years as, as pop has moved more over to kind of digital R&B, hip-hop, rap. The, you know, the kind of great sort of noisy, raucous British indie guitar band is, uh, has died a bit of a death, but I think maybe they're going to spark something of a revival. They've got a very energetic, charismatic singer, Alex Rice, and very powerful female drummer al greenwood who really kind of powers those songs along are you are you going hit or miss on that adrian well i mean there's nothing new nothing groundbreaking or particularly original about it but for for spirit alone i think i'd say a hit the nostalgia vote wins out for Adrian. i think so i think so and finally claudia connell the daily mail's television writer so, Claudia, no EastEnders. What else have no. we got coming up instead? Well, there's a, a, a brilliant drama on, on Monday night on BBC One, Sitting in Limbo. Um, it, it's about the Windrush scandal. It, it tells a real-life story of Anthony Bryan. He was, he was one of the 850 people who was wrongly accused of being in the UK illegally and, and pursued like, mercilessly by the Home Office. Patrick Robinson plays Anthony, a man who arrived in the UK from Jamaica in the 1960s with his mother when he was eight years old, and, and he never left. He had a partner, he had children, grandchildren, a job he paid his taxes and what happened is he applied for a passport so he could go and visit his sick mother in Jamaica and that triggered this incredible chain of events that resulted in him twice being carted off by the police and held for weeks on end in a cell in detention centres hundreds of miles from his home. His ordeal went on for about three years. I mean, he lost his job because he was deemed illegal and he had no right to benefits or health care and he lost his home. It's, I mean, we have, a, we have a little clip here to listen to. 
open the door right now. Anthony Bryan, I'm arresting you on suspicion of being an illegal resident. Talking about on behalf of the Home Office. Claim to have lived in London since arriving. What would be really helpful is if we could see your, your mother's original passport. I lost my job. Would you be willing to take a paternity test? I lost my home. A deportation order has been issued. 50 years I've been in this country. 50 years. The Windrush Scandal. One man's fight to prove he is British. Sitting in limbo on BBC One and iPlay. With what's going on in the United States with uh, George Floyd, this is uh, the George Floyd case. This is a, a very timely series to come up to show that there are real issues still going on in Britain. Yeah, it's a really important story. And like you say, especially at the moment with the uh, the Black Lives Matters demonstrations that are happening all over the world. I mean, Patrick Robinson in, in the lead role, people probably know him best for, for casualty. And he's, he's absolutely brilliant here is this sort of proud man who ends up just nearly broken by the system that he's he's forced to fight having to prove he is who he says he is we heard in that clip he's even asked to take paternity tests to prove that his children are his children and he's really great at portraying this just sense of despair and hopelessness it's sort of fascinating and and troubling and and sort of quite jaw-dropping what happened it's extraordinary and a reminder, of course, it wasn't that long ago. We're not talking about ancient history here. We're talking about people very recently. Yeah, so. very recently, a few years ago, yeah. Uh, and for you, a hit or a miss then, Claudia? I, I thought it's brilliant. It's, it, it's a hit. So it's up for a BAFTA next year, you reckon? I reckon so, yes. And what else have you been uh, watching? Well, also starting on Monday, this time on BBC Two, is a new three-part series. It looks at the Principality of Monaco, home to some of the wealthiest people in the world. So one in three people in Monaco are a millionaire. Um, if you want to live there and you weren't born there, that, then in order to fit the criteria, you have to have a permanent float of um, half a million pounds in your bank account at any one time. So I think that rules out me and you, Jim. It was filmed last summer. It starts with the Grand Prix, um, and that brings in about £100 million a year to Monaco. And, you know, you, you see the helicopters arriving, the super yachts mooring. During the high season, it actually costs the biggest yachts £100,000 a day to moor. The BBC gets full access to, to Prince Albert, the ruling monarch and the head of state. And actually, he comes across really well, quite down to earth, good sense of humour. Although, bizarrely, he speaks English with this very deep American accent, which is, is quite strange for a Frenchman. But we've got a little clip here to listen to. In Monaco, the helicopter is considered like a car. Every morning, I'm like, oh my God, I'm living in a dream. Step into a world where too much is never enough. 28,000 euros. Would you like another drink, sir? Inside Monaco, on BBC Two and iPlayer. Sorry, 28,000 euros for a drink? That was this huge sort of magnum of champagne, yes, for the whole bottle. Because it's what happens is they stick huge um, VAT on everything because nobody who lives there pays any tax. Yeah, I'm not going there on holiday. Uh, <laughs> does it work? Is it a good, well, is it I mean, an I mean, interesting insight? I mean, there's nothing particularly original about the idea how rich people live is, has been done sort of so many times. But I mean, there's a reason why it's done because it's, it's, it's really fascinating. There's, you know, the yachts, the cars, the jewels and an awful lot of facelifts as well. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, I, I, I did find it really, really interesting. I really enjoyed it. So I, I would say that this is another hit. Well, now you know what will temporarily free you from lockdown and what should be kept at a permanent social distance. My thanks to Brian, Claudia and Adrian. For the past three months, New York has been at the epicentre of the coronavirus, but the temperature in the city has gone up a notch or two over the past week in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. 
The male's own celebrity, celebrity watcher, Jackie Stephen, is in the middle of Manhattan and she joins me now. Jackie, uh, we were talking with Brian about the new Woody Allen love letter to his hometown, Rainy Day, New York. I suspect things have changed there a bit since that film was made. It's incredibly different out there. Huge protests every day between police and who knows, it could be people from out of town, it could be locals. We don't really know who these protesters are, but there's massive looting going on. Major stores like Gucci and Apple having things thrown through the window and people just taking a ton load of stuff. It's a really frightening time. Uh, and how are you taking your mind off this? It's quite easy because I work from home and although it's three blocks away, we have a curfew on so I can't go out at night. So I just drink wine, I cook and basically just try and cut it off. I don't watch too much news after six o'clock. I watch Angela Lansbury and Murder, She Wrote, and that manages to take my mind off it. Now, it's a big week uh, this week uh, for perhaps the most, I'm a, I'm, I may be exaggerating here, but perhaps the most famous person from your homeland, isn't it? Indeed, it's Tom Jones's 80th birthday, and it's an incredible achievement. I've been doing a programme for BBC Wales about how Tom Jones conquered America, and that's available on iPlay at the moment. And it is incredible how he was a complete outsider and really did conquer America. And that was the power of television. He did an incredible TV show where he had the likes of Janis Joplin and Stevie Wonder on it, and the networks absolutely loved him. And I think part of that reason is because he was utterly fearless and he had this incredible talent that was phenomenal and he still has it so he had a confidence that they absolutely love and love to this day he still does successful tours i know that this tour in the uk uh, has been cancelled for this year and who knows if he'll still be performing next year you know he's 80 years old but still has this incredible talent uh, yes, uh, there'll, there'll be a lot of knickers that won't be thrown as a result. <laughs> I don't wear any, so I won't be throwing any anyway. I haven't worn underwear for about 30 years because I once did an algorithm and I worked out that if you took into account all the time you put your underwear on and take it off and wash it and buy it, it takes eight years out of your life. So I recommend that nobody wears any underwear. <laughs> that is not, I'm not biting. Seriously? Eight Seriously. Years. You work out, all the, all the women listening, work out how long it takes <laughs> you to put a bra on, put your pants on, take them off, put them in the washing machine, go out buying them, trying them on in the stores, and it's about eight years of your life that you're that wasting wearing underwear. There's a Netflix series in that. But the Netflix series that everyone's talking about uh, in England uh, during lockdown was Tiger King. And, and that's moving on. Isn't there going to be a dramatisation of it? I don't really know what's happening with it. I don't follow it as avidly as a lot of other people. Although there was a big court case this week because Carol Baskin has won the zoo back from the people that Joe Exotic sold the zoo to. It turns out that the paperwork was illegal. He did it as some kind of tax dodge and he sold it to his mother. And uh, a federal judge has ordered that it be turned back over to Baskin. Now, Baskin was the person who uh, apparently there was a hit on her from uh, Joe Exotic for $3,000. And that's what he, why he's serving 22 years in prison and also for animal cruelty. Probably wise that he stays in. I mean, has there been a sort of uh, reaction against that? Or has he got supporters uh, at large in the States? Everyone wants him to be released, and I don't really get it because 
he was found guilty of a major crime, you know, trying to take someone out for stealing your big cats. And I also think that anyone who's cruel to animals doesn't deserve to be on the streets anyway. But he's become something of a hero because of the Netflix documentary. And I think that there's something in the offing to make a film about it as well. But it's been very much in the news here this week because the zoo has now been handed back. And the owners of, of it sort of pretty much knew that that was going to happen because you couldn't doubt what was on the papers. Jackie, it's been great talking to you as always. And listen, doubly uh, for where you are at the moment, uh, please keep yourself safe. Yes, and you. Take care. And that's it from It's Friday. We'll be back next week and every week via Spotify, Apple and Google. Don't forget to sign up to your daily briefing from mailplus.co.uk. And if you'd like to drop us a line, we're on It's Friday at mailplus.co.uk. Until next week, I'm Jim White. Keep safe. Thank you.